Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Scarcity Complex podcast. Today, we are going to be talking with Dr. Michael Vogel, who is a PhD psychotherapist who trained at Pacifica. And today, we are going to be talking about the topic of grief. I hope you enjoy today's show. It's the Scarcity Complex All right. Well, thank you for talking to me for the third time. <laughs> I, had, oh uh, I had interviewed you. It wasn't that our interview wasn't good, but it was, I think, things we were talking about the pandemic and things were so new then that it almost things have just been moving so fast. And then I tried to interview you last week and I had some technical difficulties. And so it's great to be back and oh. to try this again. And uh, so thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Um, so when I contacted you about, you know, being interviewed, grief really seemed to be the topic that came to mind for me. And I know in your practice, you deal a lot with it. And I think it was relevant before the pandemic, before George Floyd, before everything that we've seen in 2020, but just wondered if we could just start with a really simple definition so that everybody's kind of on the same page of what is grief? Grief is the idea of mourning the loss from a social construct, trying to separate the presence of somebody with the absence of somebody or something. Sometimes it can be the grief and loss of an object or a dream. Um, so it is the process of losing those, not necessarily memories, but those feelings that are attached to certain um, objects or persons and then rebuilding new feelings about that that relationship we have with that object or person. Interesting. So kind of rebuilding feelings in the absence of whatever that was that we had, whether it was a belief or a person or that kind of thing. Is right. That, okay. Or the possibility or the potential. Certainly, um, I think that's what we're talking about is the potential. Certainly when we're in relationship with somebody that we're really in love with, not only the person who's in front of us, but also the potential of that person, what the future might bring. So those are the things that typically connect us with somebody else or those potentials. Gotcha. Okay, cool. You know, prior to 2020, uh, I, I know I talked to different people and it seemed like there was already sort of this collective grief in the air. Mm. And then the pandemic hit, George Floyd hit, and just everything that 2020 has brought, which has just been a lot for a lot of people. And I'm, I'm wondering if you from your practice or just your own perspective, if you kind of felt that before all this happened and if you notice anything different now that we are all leading radically different lives, very isolated, mm -hmm. many of us very isolated lives right now. Right. Uh, yeah. No, I think there was, there. this is a multi-layered thing. Yeah. We've certainly got lots of ways in which we've, we've grieved and certainly had disenfranchised grief over certain ideas. Um, certainly if you want to talk about disenfranchised grief, the whole idea of slavery and how we've recognized that um, in our culture when it comes to George Floyd. When it comes to the grief of the loss of dreams, I mean, you certainly can see it with everybody who's becoming a senior this year, either in, in high school or in college, or they're leading up to some change in their life. They've lost that potential as well. So there's certainly grief around that. Um, so, and then there's the grief of generally how the world is evolving. Um, many people have a, a dream that the world was going to, to get better and we were going to get to some utopia. But unfortunately, 
as we've got things like climate change and loss of resources um, in every part of our life, including resources on a personal level or on a world level, is that everybody's grieving those losses. And some of them we can communicate with each other and talk about in, in a cultural context, and some we can't. And that's the disenfranchised grief is the one that is probably the most difficult because we can't talk about it. Um, the idea of communicating and having dialogue with people seems to be diminishing um, with our culture of always pushing communication out as opposed to sitting and listening to each other. Yeah, that's such a good point. And yeah, and let's unpack more for people, I guess, disenfranchised grief, what, what that is. Um, my understanding, and tell me if it's correct, is, you know, it's a term that's used for things that oftentimes aren't permissible to grieve for. There isn't the space to grieve for. And so prior to 2020, it felt like there was lots of those things kind of floating around in our lives. These maybe silent losses that mm -hmm. we feel, I don't know, maybe embarrassed or awkward or whatever it might be to even bring up with someone. I mean, I'm sure even in your practice and therapy, it takes people a while to warm up to you <laughs> where sure. they're sharing more vulnerably, even in, yeah. in that kind of context. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering if you could just kind of unpack for people more. But yeah, I think to, to make it short and simple, it's like that grief that we can't share with others and get reflection on. So you talk about um, maybe it's the loss of a loved one or loss of a relationship that maybe is the same sex relationship and you can't talk to your parents about it the way you would have normally talked to about um, a heterosexual or a straight relationship. So that's that's one form of disenfranchised grief. The other part of it is is grief that maybe others feel you should have gotten over by now. Um, certainly in our culture today, we want this kind of push button, you know, pop a pill, I'm over it kind of attitude towards things is a lot of people get tired of hearing somebody talk about maybe the loss of a child. Um, and so they will say, hey, I've heard enough of that. That would be very much disenfranchised grief. Um, you know, then it can be the idea of a losing, you know, the potential of a dream. Maybe it's mm -hmm. you have an injury that's going to keep you from having some kind of occupation that you thought you were going to be able to succeed at. Or maybe it's the loss of your income. Um or the loss of a lot of different things that we typically, most people want to say, oh, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on um, and just get over it. Yeah, but or... that really is just denying it. That's not moving through it. So that becomes disenfranchised. And it just will sit there like a, like a bad you know, cut. It will start to fester after a while. And then you'll go back to it over and over and over again and get caught in, in the, the whole idea of... Um, of, well, depression or anxiety over not being able to resolve some psychological conflict that you have. Mm, well, it's funny you say that because um, literally this morning before I um, came here, I, I saw an article, it's so tricky reading the news right now, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I read this article and it was talking about just, just the, basically the mental health toll that the pandemic is having on people. Mm -hmm. And it was talking about anxiety, depression, suicide, even, you know, and um, of course, you know, rise in substance abuse and things that, you know, everybody is just looking for something to kind of 
feel better because it's hard enough a lot of times it seems like to process grief when we're allowed to connect with people but when we're isolated you know mm-hmm. or confined to zoom meetings or whatever sure it's hard yeah <laughs> and um and so i i guess i'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more i, I feel like maybe you hit on an important connection that sometimes maybe not all the time but behind anxiety behind depression there might be some grief i don't know if it's that way all the time but but i but i do find that interesting that that yeah like if we aren't able to grieve well then it, it does have the potential to put us maybe in that sure yeah again if you're you have some kind of psychological conflict that you can't resolve and you can't reflect it with others and talk about it um, and get other people's opinions or other people's empathy or sympathy, then you have to hold it by yourself. And trying to resolve it by doing reality testing, we certainly can do that and say, well, other people feel this, so therefore I should feel okay. Sometimes it works, but if it's something that's that's more, I guess, intimate and touches us deeper, like the loss of a love, um, then it's not so easy to move through it. You really do need time and process and being able to reflect off of others and have people hug us and hold us, um, tell us everything's going to be okay, and then be able to find new connections to replace those old ones. Because if we don't replace the old ones, because we are kind of a herd animal, is that we will then feel isolated, alone, and depressed, or overly anxious, um, especially in time of COVID, which we're dealing with the idea of trying to live a normal life, which is very disjointed for most people, and the idea that if we go and try and do the things we normally do, we might die, or we might catch something and and then suffer some kind of trauma, mm-hmm. whether it's a physical or mental trauma. So we're really stuck in this kind of dichotomous state right now. And if you're alone, um, you have really nobody to talk to other than maybe through the television set or through a computer screen. That's only part of the information. That's just the explicit information. It lacks, oh, I would say about 90% of the implicit information that we would normally get in a communication. Then you couple that with talking with people in real life with a mask on. Um, I deal with a large portion of people who have hearing difficulties, whether they're older or maybe have some type of hearing disability is a mask is a barrier to them. They feel even more isolated and alone. Mm -hmm. So the whole pandemic and, and idea of going home and staying home is, can for some people feel very frightening and very um, disjointed. So there's the grieving and the loss of what is normalcy in our life. Mm. You hit on a couple things there. I'd love to unpack even more. Um, one, you said, I guess I'll just start with this question. You said 10% of the information, or you, you even said we can do like a reality comparison of like, well, everybody's feeling this way. And that some of that, if I'm not reading too much between the lines here, a lot of that seems very like, that 10% seems very in the head. Yes. Where a lot of times, I mean, I know I all of us can just tend to live there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, versus like the other 90% of like what we're feeling in our, in our bones, in our right. body, that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. And not everybody is a thinker. Some people are feelers, some people are sensates, <laughs> some, you know, some, so, or some people are intuitive. 
And so we lack those kind of connections in a lot of ways. Mm. Sometimes we can really get overwhelmed by, um, say, an intuition about something. Um, Then if we can't get a hold of somebody or reflect on it, then it's it can sometimes get bigger and bigger. I just had one happen to me yesterday. We had a very synchronistic moment with one of my patients, and I thought for sure something was going on. And had I not been able to go reflect with my partner or go um, pick up the telephone and call a few people, I would have thought that that intuition was true. So again, it's one of those things where, yeah, we can get, stuck in our heads and start thinking about things from a cognitive way. But we do need to be able to do reality testing and communicate with other people and find out whether it's really true or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this, you know, COVID certainly makes it much more difficult. Sometimes we can't get a hold of people on Zoom. Yeah. So, or via phone or text. So. And you've also used the word reflect, reflection, I think several times already just at the tail or the very beginning here of our conversation what are your reflections (laughs) what are your reflections on the power of reflection why is reflection so powerful in terms of us being able to reflect and then also I feel like a big part of I, I encountered this gosh something similar not I don't know what your situation was but there was something I don't know in the last few days where I was like oh I was so glad I had someone it was somebody who saw me. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember what it is now, which is strange, but it was somebody who really saw me. I didn't, it, it was one of those things where it's like, oh, I don't have to spend energy, you know, trying to explain myself or just to be understood. And there was something in that simple gift of being seen that just kind of, for me, almost reminded me that uh, that I am okay, yeah. <laughs> that, that everything is right, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, not perfect, but but right. And so I don't know if that... Well, I think if we moved through the world, say we go for a walk and we're walking down the street and nobody notices us, are we going to feel present? Because I think we're conscious beings. If we weren't conscious beings, we'd be more primitive in nature and start just reacting to either, is or, am I in danger or am I not in danger? Um, and am I uncomfortable and do I need to eat? Those kinds of things. But since we're conscious beings, we're looking around the world looking for various ways of predicting how and how we move through the world, what we're doing and whether it's correct or not correct, um, or how, whether our presence has any impact on the world. Mm -hmm. Um, We start doing that at a very young age of trying to figure out how much power and control we have, trying to figure out whether I exist the same as you or am I part of you or am I separate from you? All of those things we need reflection to figure those kinds of things out because we are conscious beings. And then if we have a creative idea or an idea about spirituality or spiritual, something that we can't put our finger on, we want other people to validate for us that that's, that's occurring. Um, even in science, we're always putting papers out there and studies to say, Hey, this is what I found. Did you find the same thing? So we're constantly trying to get reflection from other people just to, to know that we exist and that our consciousness is, I guess, essentially correct so that we can move forward and and become whatever it is the potential brings to us. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're comfortable sharing this. I think you will be. But um, 
you you hit at the beginning. You mentioned the example of um, sometimes with grief, there's the death of a dream. Um, like we, we always, like you said, we always think of grief as like somebody dies, a pet dies. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're allowed to grieve. You know, everybody, even your worst enemies, will give you, you know, they'll mm-hmm. give you a freebie on that one, right? But um, death of a dream, you know, um, and I know you've shared a little bit, I know a little bit about your story, about how you kind of even transitioned into your practice. You weren't, you haven't always been a therapist. Right. I don't know if you could just share a little yeah. bit more about your own personal journey. I found it really fascinating when I heard it. But. Yeah, the, you know, I started off um, going to college to become a, uh, go to medical school and become a doctor, become a psychiatrist and got caught by a Navy recruiter walking down the hall and he said, Hey, come, come fly jets for us. So I ended up spending 15 years flying jets and I absolutely loved it. It was a childhood dream to become an astronaut, but I wasn't my overarching um, desire to, to go through all of that training and do all those things. But when he caught me and said, come do it. And I spent quite a few years flying jets for the Navy and land, landing aboard carriers is I really loved the job and I had planned on staying in the job. But um, unfortunately, due to an injury, um, I ended up suffering a, a, a back injury and having multiple back operations. So the trickster kind of stepped in and said, hey, I think you need to go back and think about doing what you're originally going to do, which is to become a psychoanalyst or psychotherapist. So that's what pushed me back into this particular occupation. So that was the death of one dream. And at the time it was devastating. I thought my world had ended and I was never going to be able to do anything ever again. At one point I was in a wheelchair and stayed in bed most of the time um, because of the back injuries. But fortunately I found some excellent doctors and had multiple surgeries and now I'm back to functioning again and being able to do something that I love even more than the occupation I had before. So um, sometimes the death of one dream and the grieving of it, it took years of grieving. I still miss flying. I'd love to be flying. Sure. But unfortunately, because of my injuries, I can't. So, but that death of that dream was difficult because after the initial injury and the discharge from the military, um, there was really nobody to talk to about it except for a therapist. So, and it was, thank goodness, a therapist that I was able to sit with and be able to reflect. So, um, it's important to find somebody who will listen to your story, even if it's over and over and over again, which are plenty of people heard my story, um, just be able to get the reflection. Even if they say nothing more than I'm sorry that happened to you, it, it really, those kinds of things can sometimes be cathartic moments for us to move on into the next phase yeah to let go of the previous dream and and move into the next one yeah but there is always a next one don't let anybody ever tell you that when one door closes another one doesn't open Mm -hmm. they always do and it's usually better Mm. so true and i can i can relate a lot to what you're sharing i mean i did i grew up with a lot of creativity and and maybe we can reflect and explore this a little bit, you know, the dance, I guess, there between trying to stay open to these, to these dreams, to these, you know, like, like that part of me that this creative part, which is a big part of this season of my life right now that I'm really, I feel like stepping back into that never left me. 
I'm wondering if we could explore a little bit more. Um, and, and again, there's not a formula for this, but the balance between staying open to our dreams, staying open to to life, and 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 yet when we do that, there is always that risk. Well, I think the idea of letting a dream die. I think if you if you rationalize things too much and you find all sorts of reasons why something can't happen, then somehow that's an ego state happening where you're trying to not get in, injured in some way. And I think that's the key is that if we can be open to maybe getting injured in some way by the death of something or maybe by the death of a dream in, in particular, I don't mean death of a person because we never want that, but the, the maybe the death of, of an idea about ourselves that's limiting us. I think that typically is what keeps people from doing anything. And so sometimes those kind of dreams need to die or those types of psychological um, complexes need to die so that we don't get stuck in rationalizing things away. Getting stuck in an ego complex or an ego defense in which we're not allowing ourselves to, to move on and be injured, whether it's letting part of our psyche die like the idea that we're not good at something or we're not good enough to do those things. If we can let those parts die um, and move on into the possibility of struggling or maybe getting injured in some way by taking on a career or a school project or you know a school class and maybe failing it the first time, but it really is the persistence of something and persisting at anything that will pay off in the long run mm. and make those dreams come alive. Yeah. Certainly going back to school for me and going through my master's and PhD is it was it was not something that I was used to doing. I came from a very cognitive world in the military, flying jets and it was all by the numbers to a very depth oriented psychological school mm -hmm. in which you were exploring the inner parts of yourself and writing about the inner parts of yourself or writing about the inner parts of others and really looking at those things that can limit us and those things that can actually expand us as well. Cause sometimes expanding into something can be just as scary as, as limiting ourselves. So, but if we're open to the possibilities and open to the possibility of, of being injured in some way, then we can typically fulfill those dreams and move into that potential of who we really are. Mm. But I do think persistence always pays off. Yeah. I went into the military to become a pilot and didn't get it the first time. It took several attempts um, because I do think it's always no for now, but not no forever. Sometimes you have to keep going back and asking the same question, mm. can I do this? Um, and I think that's important is to be open to the idea of maybe having your feelings hurt when they say no the first time, but knowing if you want something to keep going after it. Yeah. Wow. That's good. No for, no for now, but not no forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when we first were talking or when I first mentioned to you about talking about grief, you mentioned a book by Robert Romanchian. Did I Romanishan? guess? Romanishan. Romanishan. Almost yeah. got it right this time. Um, and it was a book called The Soul and Grief and just amazing like writing. And um, apparently he was, I think, one of your faculty at Pacifica, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And um, 
and he wrote this book after his wife had unexpectedly died, I think in her forties. And so it's a really heartfelt, honest account of just his process of what he went through. And, um, but one of the words that came up in the book that I feel like isn't a word that we hear a lot about today, he kept talking about getting lost in reverie, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. And I'm wondering if we could just explore that a little bit as, as, as people might be listening and they're dealing with grief of any kind, whether it's a big thing or these dull aches that a lot of, I think a lot of us tend to kind of carry in today's world, maybe just unpack for people what reverie is. Cause again, it's a word I feel like we don't hear very often. And then, um, and then whatever reflections you might have, right. I guess. From well, that. I think the idea of reverie, most people will go directly to the idea of partying or being the frivolity of something. But I think what he's trying to get at is the idea of revering something. Um, and he uses the, the, um, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice in the book and talks about the idea of how um, Eurydice was his muse, his inspiration, and he was the god of music or the lute. And so he felt like he needed her to, to be in reverie in order to, to get lost in his creativity, to get lost in his passion for, for playing music. And when she in, in, in the story dies and gets bit by a snake in the garden, he just falls to pieces. It becomes dismembered. Mm. And so he goes to the gods and pleads with the gods to get her back. And in the process, they say, okay, fine, we'll, we'll give her back to you. But when you go get her from the underworld, you can't look back. If you look back, she's going to go back into the underworld and she's lost forever. Mm. And of course, he goes and gets her. And as he's walking out through the portal, he, in, in the human curiosity that we have, turns around to see if she's still there and loses her. And that's when he really does become dismembered and gets lost in, in the whole reverie of, of what he's lost and, and how he feels like he can't live without her and literally becomes totally dismembered and flows away in the river in the story. So it's that idea that getting stuck in something, sometimes even when it's painful, maybe we need to honor it. And maybe we need to, to take a look at what it's trying to teach us yeah. as opposed to feeling like we're a victim of something or feeling like we've completely lost all th- things. But maybe we haven't. Maybe we need to to show it some honor and some grace and and see what it has to say. Mm. I think that's the big part of the the story. Yeah. So it may be looking back is part of the story. And do you think the looking back part is is that need for the assurance that we're I mean you could say it's a lack of faith, it's a lack of whatever. Why? Yeah, I think we can look back and say, oh, I've lost this thing and I'll never get that thing again. Yeah. That might be one reason to look back, but I don't know if that's really the reason. It might be looking back on what it what it was and what it gave us and honoring the experience that we had, maybe in that relationship or in possessing something or you know, the, having the ability to do something. But it's also looking at it and saying, what is this saying to me? Just, just like when I l- lost my ability to, 
to get a medical certificate and be able to fly, what had I could have locked it, looked at what I lost, or I could look at, at it and say, okay, what is what did I get out of the experience? What is it giving me? And then what can I do with those things? And also then what does it allow me to do? Because now it allowed me to do something different. So it wasn't necessarily a loss. It was certainly sad. I certainly would love to be flying again. Mm -hmm. It's a joy of mine. But it did give me the opportunity to to then focus on something different Mm -hmm. and to find my way into something else that I truly love. And I really, really do enjoy the work that I do almost, if not more passionately than I did before. So I'm still doing somewhat the same thing. I'm still working with people. I'm just working with them on the issues that they're struggling with mm-hmm. and helping them have reverie for what's going on in their life and maybe trying to find a new path if it if the current path isn't working. Yeah. So it's really the idea of honoring something and, and paying homage to it so that we can then explore what is given and where we're going. Because it is maybe a good guidepost for us. So in order to find our way in the world, we have to know where we're at in order to know where we're going. Yeah. So When I tried interviewing you last time and we had the audio problems, um, I think it ties in a lot with what you're just saying now. And kind of just to link a little bit of that back into today's interview. um, You mentioned, I think you mentioned this actually at the top of the, the beginning of this conversation as well, of this idea that we're in relationship with so many different things, with beliefs, with uh, career, with people. And I know when we were talking last time, you had mentioned kind of what you just said, that like it's easy, it feels like sometimes with painful experiences, with, I mean, I I can think of so many situations and have witnessed so many things where somebody's like wants to almost rewrite like they really enjoyed something it could be a friendship or relationship or whatever it could be really enjoyed something in that period and then the loss is there of whatever it is there's a tendency i find for sometimes for the human nature of wanting to then kind of enter this binary line of thinking of oh well i'm you know i'm so glad that what that's that's out of my life now i mean unless it was something just so toxic and horrible but I think what I'm hearing you say is that maybe sometimes the tendency to do that might be sometimes to not deal with maybe the grief and really realizing there were a lot of really beautiful things, but there seems to be a tendency today in our culture where it's like everything is so black and white, everything is this or that, and versus like I can think of almost nothing in my life that's been a 10 on the joy scale or a 10 on the pain and you know scale or there hasn't been something good or beautiful that I learned from it, that I was able to reflect on what, you know, what, what did I learn about myself? What, you know, and I guess just this idea of what you, what you were hitting on that we're so much more in relationship with things, I guess, than we realize. Yeah. I think the idea that we're, that we're this, these individuals just moving through the world, we have no effect on anybody else is, is I I don't want to say simple. It's, it, it really is one of those things where I think if we start becoming aware of how we're impacting everything that happens around us, including if we feel like we're not a big part of the world, like we're, we're just doing a menial task or this really isn't going to make much difference if I 
go stand on a street corner with a sign. It really does. You never know what that impact's going to be. There you know, is the whole idea of the butterfly effect, where if a butterfly flaps his wings in one part of the world, can he cause a cause chaos somewhere else? And I think that's true. It does. A little small little thing can mean a big little thing. So we need to be aware that everything that we do can can be big, despite the fact that it might feel small. Mm-hmm. So I I think if we um, look at the world from the perspective of being interconnected, we might actually start to be a little more respectful of each other and see how my actions are going to affect somebody else's. That doesn't mean that I stop saying or thinking or feeling the way I want to feel, but I do need to be respectful and honor the fact that what I do and say might actually have some impact on somebody else. Again, I'm not always going to be able to to make everybody happy or please everybody. There are sometimes I'm going to say or do things that might might feel injurious to somebody else, but it's also a chance for people to reflect and find out how they feel about it as opposed to telling other people to to not say something. I don't think that's the, a good way to to have a good dialogue and then learn something about ourselves. I don't know if that's where we were going, but yeah, no, that's great. Okay. So this is one of the quotes from the, the book soul and grief. And there were a lot of them actually that I had highlighted, but I'll just say this one. Cause I feel like it's, um, it ties in a lot to what, uh, the, the podcast that I aired last, the, the last one that just aired was an interview that I did with a friend who she's a death midwife. And so we actually mm-hmm. talked about death and then yeah. she just said, shared some really I recorded it over a year ago, but she just shared some really amazing stories about how, and she was talking in this case about physical death, um, but how in death it's, it's the place where the heart is just broken open mm-hmm. and it's this opportunity that in that moment where all the logic all the whatever it is that's in our heads it just bypasses all that and we're just dealing with the heart and she said you know that's the you know the moment a lot of times where the truer us has a chance to kind of come through and it I'll just read this quote and but he said love has blossomed from my sorrow And in continuing this work of loving after loss, something in me has been ripened. He said, I would be untrue to the experience of my loss and the love which had followed if I were to leave the impression that this ripening of my soul has had anything to do with my will. (laughs) On the contrary, like the sun calls the flower, love is something that chooses the lover, he puts in parentheses, out and calls him to vast things. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that quote. I think it's a really powerful quote. Yeah, no, I think that it. when we're in the midst of sorrow, I do think it does bring us down to those baser parts of ourselves in which we can then reflect on. Um, because when we're hurting, I think that it diminishes the ego quite a bit and causes us then to start thinking ourselves in terms of our relationship with others. So he uses the idea of the sun and the flower being called to each other. Well, they need each other. Without without others, we, we don't exist. Yeah. And I think in the sorrow, you're certainly opening yourself up 
to the fact that, okay, I am now powerless. I have no power over what's going on. So it's time for me to then to look to others for ways of moving forward in the world or maybe reconnecting with other other people in other ways. Because I do think we need to fill in those gaps. When somebody dies in, in my life, I don't just start existing without them. I actually go and find other people to replace them. So whether it's the loss of a, of a parent or a grandparent, it is important to find people who can maybe fill in those gaps. Maybe not the negative parts, but how about the positive parts of maybe the wise sage of your grandmother or grandfather? <laughs> um, so that you have somebody, that, again, to go be able to talk to and get, you know, maybe a generational perspective on something. So I do think that that's the moment at which we're most vulnerable the definition of intimacy is being in a place where we are open to injury. Mm. That's the definition of intimacy. So if we can't get there, then I don't think we really do have connection with others. So, yeah. And you use the word power, but not in the sense, in the way that I feel like where we're used to seeing it, you know, that we think of power as status, influence, control, money, you know, mm -hmm. fill in the blank. And I think the way I heard you use power just now is that power and sorrow. Yeah. Yeah. The power to love, the power to be accepting, the power, power to be accepted because we have to be willing to be injured ourselves in order to have a connection with somebody else. If we're not doing that, all we're doing is existing with each other as opposed to and I certainly see lots of things where it says coexist. No, I think we need to go beyond that. I think we need to go to, we need to relate to you. And that doesn't necessarily mean I have to be you or be like you, but I do need to relate to other people. And I, and I do it just about every day, all day long, not just in, in my therapy sessions in my office, but also when I go to the store and I'm talking to the, the clerk at the grocery store and, and they're checking me out um, and they're saying, Hey, can I do anything for you? I don't think they're asking me for my life story, but it, it, maybe they're asking for a gesture of acknowledgement of, I, I, I see you, I see you exist. Yeah. And so it's nice to say, Hey, thank you for your, you know, kind words mm -hmm. um, or taking your time to, to help me. Mm. And I know as you're talking, I'm thinking about, I think we've all been, on both sides of the fence or whatever analogy I'm looking for here, where we've been in the place where we're the ones in our sorrow and we're just the simple gaze or the simple kindness of even something as small as what you just said means the world. It reminds mm -hmm. us that, oh my gosh, right now in the midst of this aloneness or whatever it is, the sorrow that I might feel, somebody saw me. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think about the opposite of how when we're not in that place and we are able to have the presence or the grace, whatever word we want to use to then be in that state ourselves where we are then able to see someone else, mm -hmm. um, the gift of that to, I guess, of both getting to receive that. And then also, cause I mean, and this is interesting. I haven't gotten through his books yet, but the, with Robert, 
I'm going to mess up his name again. Robert Romanian? Did Rom- I get it? Romanian. Romanian. Sorry, Dr. Romanian. I'm still not saying it right. I'd love to interview him someday. So, yeah. well, yeah, you actually recommended another book. One was The Shadow. What was the book on the technology? You want to have it, but. It was, oh, I'd have to go look at the. Okay. So yeah. there's one about the shadow of technology and then, um, or dreams and. Uh, it has to do with dreams and the something of technology. And then his newer book, it's it's a kind of a modern day application on the really the prophecy of Frankenstein. And it's also geared around technology. And so let's talk about that a little bit because before the pandemic, before you know this this new world we're living in for right now and what will be different afterwards, I'm sure, and whatever ways remains to be seen. So many times technology can be the thing, the very thing that would keep me, would keep so many of us from having a connective conversation when we're checking out at the grocery store. Because we're, you know, even during this pandemic, it's super tricky because technology, it's a means by which people are getting to connect right now. But like even just this last week, I finally was like, you know what? I'm not a huge social media person, but I was like, I need to just... I'm going to do an experiment and I'm going to just limit myself to like, it's like 15 minutes in the morning. I'm going to, I'm going to log on to whatever Instagram, I'm just going to, you know, um, I'm going to limit myself to 15 minutes and then that's it. And this is what I find remarkable is that our ability to shift our state, our presence, it doesn't take much sometimes, you know, <laughs> really had had an impact, you know. But then I also noticed that when I pick up my phone, and this is what's really scary, is my finger. <laughs> you know, I had to stop my finger from, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I am so mindless right. in the way that I interact, you know, with technology. And I think every single one of us can identify with that in some capacity. So let's talk about that because like we had an issue with this before the pandemic, but now we're in a place where we don't have the luxury of the real life connection. Like you said, even if we didn't take advantage of the real life connection before all this started, and yet it is a means by which in some ways it's connecting us, but in some ways I'm finding it's still like, I mean, you said this already, it's just still so limiting. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think technology is, a, a, is multifaceted, <clears throat> excuse me, and technology is multifaceted. I think it has some good points and some bad points. It's certainly some, in some ways we can get lost in an addiction where we're ignoring the people that are physically present, like such as a gaming addiction. Um, but I do think that in some ways it does have the ability to to help us do, I think, some kind of world dreaming in the sense that creativity can come out of it. You certainly, you see stuff on Instagram or on Facebook or um, many of the other apps that in which you see people's creativity is just enormous, whether it's through words or song or art. And so it might be our saving grace for the humanities. You never know. Mm-hmm. So it does have some some positive effects. And I do think that we should limit the amount of time that we spend on the internet or on our phones if it looks like we're not then taking advantage of interactions we can have with people who are physically present. Mm. So, or we're not able to then 
cope or have good emotional regulations when we're not on our phone, because it does create a biological response. It creates dopamine every time we push on a button and we certainly get a, a certain amount of oxytocin from the connection. So it, it, it does have some addictive traits, but it also has some positive traits as well. We just have to make sure that we do what you were saying is limit the amount of time that we do spend. Um, certainly watching videos is a good form of dissociation. It helps us then find a more creative or dreamlike state, but we don't want to use it to exclude other things like our normal executive functioning. So we just have to be careful and manage it, you know, and use it to our advantage as opposed to letting it rule us. I do know I was doing some research yesterday and they were talking about whether there's truly a, a gaming addiction or a video addiction. <clears throat> and I think the jury is still out as to whether there's actually an addiction. I, I do know that when it comes to where it's interfering with personal interaction, like you can't get your child or your partner or your um, best friend to get away from the video game and do some physical activity and they become obese, that certainly is not a good idea. Or they're not taking showers or they're not going to work. That's where it becomes an addiction. But I don't think it's, we're starting to see it differently as a, just solely a negative. Um, yeah. It's where it starts interfering with our functioning that it becomes a negative. Have you seen Ready Player One by any chance? No. Mm -mm. Okay. I just <clears throat> downloaded it to my mm -hmm. iPad. Um, I just started it yesterday yeah. and it is, I'm blown away. You gotta, it's like, I don't want to give it, give it away, but it's basically, it's 2045 or something like that. And it's virtual realities everywhere. Mm -hmm. But yet all of the issues that we see going in our, in our world from income inequality to people basically have given up hope on the world mm. and the opening scene, I mean, it's, it's a Spielberg film. And oh, wow. It's just, and what's so fascinating is like on the one hand, it is unlocking what you were saying. Like, like people are able to connect, they're able to be whatever they want to be in these worlds. Mm -hmm. And yet as soon as they take the goggles off, you know, or, right. or they're all by themselves, you know, because that is the future. Like, I mean, that's well, that's where we're headed. And, and I, 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 I agree, but I disagree only because I, I think that's a possibility. A possibility. That's a good way to put it. But I don't think that the human psyche will allow that to happen. I think we need the physical connection because um, you're never going to get physical touch from another human being from a machine. So despite the fact that they're building robots that look like humans, it's never a human. You're, there's something about the fact that all 10 billion cells that we have running around in our body creating electrical current and atoms that are orbiting other, you know, or electrons that are orbiting other atoms is we need that energy that we each person creates in order to feel physically whole. I don't think that we're ever going to replace that. Visual will not replace that. Putting our consciousness into a computer and living forever is not going to replace that. There's just no way. I think we will always have this balance between the between technology and physical world. 
And I think as long as we maintain that, we're going to be fine. But when you start asking people, would you want to live forever? If I could download your consciousness and live forever, most people will say, that's not life. And no, they wouldn't. So for me, life is only life because there's the possibility of death. Mm. And without death, there's no rebirth. So do I want to exist this way forever? No. No, because if I download my consciousness right now, it has pain in it, physical and psychological pain in it. That consciousness will be, and I guarantee you, just like in the movie um, Sunshine or um, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, if I go in and remove that pain, I am removing part of me and I don't exist anymore. Yeah. Something else exists, but it's not me. And so that's the question. Do I want to somehow scrub myself to be something that I'm not? Mm. And I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. So I, I, I like the possibility of maybe multiple lives or the possibility that maybe this is the only life. And it's certainly going to make me work harder if I know that this is the only life. So I choose, I choose this state which is in a human body with my consciousness intact in a human brain. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and you're tying it back then, yeah, to the topic, not that we have to stay only on this topic. I think, like you said, it's, everything is connected here. But I don't know, for some reason, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, whales. And there's there was that story of the, the whale that grieved her. I don't know, what's the baby whale called? Is it that. Her calf, calf, yeah. yeah, and how she carried it for, you know, or mm. when, or when there's two dogs and one dog dies, that that is something that probably not every creature has, but it's interesting that grief is something that you could definitely argue is something not just that humans, you know, are mm -hmm. subject to, yeah, and um, and that that is part of. The beauty of life <laughs> yeah 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 because otherwise it just becomes existence yeah you just exist yeah and then then i have to worry about whether somebody's going to you know do the the um work to maintain that server that i exist on <laughs> and i gotta pay somebody to do that so again again it just becomes existence it doesn't become life yeah so life comes with the unpredictability yeah. Or the unpredictability, whichever the better word. Have you ever read, um, I think it's it's uh, Huxley's Island. Have you ever read that by any mm -hmm. chance? No. It's, um, the premise of it was that they, they figure out a way. I, I'm, I've, it has been a long time since I've read it, but I think the premise was that they figure out a way to extend life. They're not talking about like consciousness being downloaded and all that. And, um, and all the implications that come from that, because, and I remember... Years ago, I was doing a, I think it was a Qigong workshop, and the instructor was talking about how over his time of working with people, you know, everybody would be like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to live forever. But then when it did come to that time, you know, when it was getting closer, mm -hmm. uh, there is that initial resistance, you know, people. Yeah. And, and, and he had a really good insight where I, he said something about, I guess I'm trying to tie Huxley's Island with what this, what this facilitator said. 
that let's say someday we extend life to 300 years, or like you said, that it's forever, that we're whatever it is, uh, memories, consciousness, whatever it is. Well, then what, like, we're still back to the place of like, well, then why are we here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ultimately, it seems like we're here to grow in wisdom, to grow in, you know, yeah. I think that would be the word to use sure. maybe is wisdom. Yeah. Would you agree? I mean, yeah, and I don't think it comes without some anguish and suffering. Yeah. And that that's the part I think if we were to be able to download the consciousness, we would probably lose parts of that. I can't say we'd lose all of it because I don't know what it would be. Yeah. But I do think that it really is one of those, I, I just choose the physical life over the idea of something electronic that is then managed as opposed to having the unpredictability or unpredictability of what life brings. Yeah. Um, so as we're closing here, if somebody's listening to this podcast today and they're listening to it either right now, which is August of 2020 or months, years later after the pandemic and whatever has come from all this, but someone is struggling with loss of any kind with grief, what, limited words <laughs> would you try to encourage somebody with right now if they just feel like this is just hard and they don't it doesn't feel like it's ever going to lift or they don't know how they're going to any any parting words or thoughts i guess as to what you might leave someone listening or even one of your clients when they come into your office with well i mean it's if it's somebody who's just isolated and alone definitely reach out and find somebody who will sit and listen to you. And if your friends won't do it, find anybody, somebody who will take the time to just sit and listen. Cause sometimes in, in, even in therapy, just sitting here, spending time with people without ever saying a word can be much more therapeutic than sitting alone by yourself. So find somebody to connect with mm-hmm. somebody, anybody to connect with. And if you're grieving and and you feel like people aren't listening to your grief, find somebody else who will, who will sit there and listen to your story until they're there and you're blue in the face. (laughs) Because that's really what's going to help us get through these kinds of things is be able to to listen to each other and talk to each other and know that regardless of on which side of the fence you're on, that both sides feel the same way. Both are scared. Both have fear. Both have a desire for things to be better. Nobody wants anybody else, I think, in this life to, to hurt and, and feel anguish for the rest of their life. So find that person who will listen. Well, thanks. Thanks for talking and exploring all these little places we went today on the conversation. This oh, was really, my pleasure. really fun. All and, right. And, Anytime. Um, yeah. So thank you. It's a scarcity complex podcast.